Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 91, The Heroes Behind the Heroes, Part 4. I'm Pat Ryan. Today, we're posting the last episode of our series telling the amazing story of the rescue of the audio from NASA's Mission Control Center in Houston during the Apollo 11 mission that landed the first Americans on the moon. The earlier episodes recount the tale of Dr. John Hansen's intent to use that audio for his academic research in communications and speech processing, and how he and his team ran into one hardware issue after another that threatened the whole project. But as Hansen said at the end of Episode 3, his team's determination to succeed was similar to NASA's attitude when it was trying to meet President Kennedy's goal of putting a man on the moon. We set a goal... And we, did, we may not have had all the answers at that instant when we set the goal, but people work collaboratively together to ensure that they're going to achieve that. So this was something that we've, we tried to inspire the students that were all involved with this, with that mindset. When we left our heroes last time, they had finished digitizing 19,000 hours of audio from Apollo 11 and some other missions of the era. But their job wasn't done. And so neither is our story. Let's jump back in and find out what happens next. Here we go. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Mission start. T-zero. Launch the midline circuit. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Who can forget this classic opening line? We sleek it cowren timorous beastie. Okay, maybe most people forgot it. But probably most people know this line that's from just a little bit further down in the Robert Burns poem to a mouse. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glay. Well, John Hansen can attest to the truth of that statement. The University of Texas at Dallas professor, who is the university's distinguished chair in telecommunications engineering and the founder and director of the Center for Robust Speech Systems. He had a plan. He and his team of students were going to salvage the audio recorded in NASA's Mission Control Center in Houston during the first Apollo moon landing and do a comprehensive study of the language used by a large group of people while they were collaborating to solve a problem. The researchers were going to advance speech and language technology by developing the mechanical systems that could better understand a jumble of human speech as compared to a single voice. Their plan did not include solving a major engineering problem to get the only available piece of hardware that could possibly play the audio off of analog tapes, get that equipment into operating condition so that they could digitize these sounds of history. Completely off-plan, they designed and fabricated brand new hardware components, and then they oversaw the playback of more than 60 audio tapes running some 14 hours each just to get the raw material with which to do the science they came here to do in the first place. Yeah, we, we had 19,000 hours, uh, probably in the neighborhood of about 12 terabytes of data. Um, and like anything, uh, that's a lot of data. And if you say, okay, uh, we've now digitized it. If I threw that over the fence at you and said, <laughs> here's the data, you'd say, well, that's great. It's too much. Don't know what to do with it. 
don't know how to actually interpret it or use it in any way. So that's where, unfortunately, the process of actually building the solution and digitizing it, this was an engineering challenge, but it was something that was basically, you can think of as, as like a task, something that had to be done. During this entire process, we weren't kind of just waiting around, waiting for the audio to be available. We had students and researchers focused on developing the technologies to be ready when the audio had been digitized. And so those algorithms, the basic strategies refer to diarization. Normally we think, well, if you got the audio, just feed it through a speech recognition system. And you could look, for example, at smartphones, you could look at Amazon Alexa or Apple Siri and say, well, I've got speech recognition. Why can't I just take this audio and feed it through Alexa or feed it through, you know, Siri? Why couldn't you? And the answer is because NASA speaks in acronyms. Plans AFT. Go ahead. Hey, Leo, where are you getting your ESAP pointing data? I'm getting it from the uh, CMs. No, I'm talking about the, does the, either the LIM or the CSM PSAT have a ESAP ephemeris in it? And those acronyms are not there simply to kind of uh, make things sound more technical. It's because NASA was trying to accomplish, you know, the bulk of the command and control and here through audio communication. So if you could say something, you know, in one or two seconds that may have taken three to five seconds to, to speak, well, now you've opened up that channel for someone else to talk. And so acronyms were used primarily to try and be more efficient. The problem is when you look at any commercial-based speech recognition technology out there, none of them, absolutely none of them are set up for the type of NASA uh, vocabulary that's used, that's one. And two, virtually all speech technology that's out there is intended for one person giving a voice command or saying something to a machine. And all the communication here, none of this was intended to be used for speech technology. It was people talking with each other to solve a problem. So it's natural, spontaneous speech. And the speaking style that we have here is dramatically different than if you're actually speaking to Alexa or Siri. Um, there's lots of co-articulation effects. Uh, and what that means is, you know, if you looked at printed material, if you saw the phrase, cats and dogs each hate the other. Well, if you listen to me carefully, I actually did not say what was actually printed if it was written there because I said cats and dogs the word A-N, not A-N-D. So if we're actually saying it the way it should have been, it should have been cats and dogs. But we don't speak that way. And so because of that, the speech recognition technology has to interpret from the audio what would be an appropriate text sequence. And so that requires uh, a dictionary or a lexicon, and it also requires a very effective language model that uh, predicts what word might come after a given word. Your ability to tell the com to give the computer a hint about the language that's being used. Exactly, yeah. So when I mentioned this diarization, well, when you look at any mission for Apollo, they're typically six to eight days long, 30 channels. You also have to think every uh, NASA mission specialist uh, in the Mission Control Center 
they're not working the entire 100 and, you know, 68 or 170 hours straight, right? So you're going to have typically three or four people that are taking shifts, working an eight-hour shift, maybe overlapping by one hour. Between At each shifts. of one of those consoles in the flight control room, there yes. are a, there's a team yes, in yeah. rotation. So, so that means that for an eight-hour period, we typically would have one person responsible for whatever that uh, loop would, would represent. Um, and so by, by in the digitizing process, now we want to actually go through and do diarization. So that task first requires that we run something called speech activity detection. We want to identify where there's silence and when there's speech. The reason for that is if there's silence, we really want to turn off the speech recognizer. If no one is talking, you don't want the recognizer listening in because it'll start spitting out words if there's some noise or some other uh, distortion that might appear on that. So now you have spurious words popping out, and that's not a good thing. So speech activity detection is done first. After that, you've identified blocks would represent speech, and then you feed only those portions into speech recognition. Maybe before you do the speech recognition, you actually might do what's called speaker clustering. And the reason for that is when we're looking at uh, a loop, you typically have two people talking to each other. So you really would like to actually identify the turns. If PAO is speaking, or let's not, let's say um, flight director. So flight director is speaking and he's trying to get information about flight dynamics or something like that. Flight Fado, go ahead. In the interest of science, it would behoove us at this time to take a checkpoint. Let me check our associates. Econ, stand by one. About you, GNC, whenever we get over this uh, present stumbling block. Okay, flight, we go. Fido, we get some cooperation. So he asks a question, and then that person responds. So there's turn taking going on. So we want to identify is it speaker A, speaker B, speaker A, speaker B. And then after that, uh, when we run speech recognition, we at least have an idea that there's turns taking place here. So that it can tell the difference, that, that there are different persons? Yes, that there are different speaking. people that are talking to each other, yes. So, so uh, in order to build a speech recognizer, you got to understand that we now need to migrate uh, the technologies that we've worked on for more than 25 years in, in our center um, to something that would work for NASA, NASA speak, if you want to call it that. And so one of the things we needed to do was first to get a lexicon, a, a dictionary of all the expressions that NASA would use, uh, and then build a language model. To do that, we went and we pulled every document about Apollo that we could find, books, news releases, everything we could find. We pulled a total of 4.2 billion words in order to build our lexicon and to build our language model. So the lexicon, you know, the English language has about 600,000 words, okay? Yeah, if you threw in some of NASA's expressions in there, you <laughs> might add a few more than 600,000, I guess. Um, but most vocabulary systems, when you're doing speech recognition, are typically 100,000 to maybe 140, 150,000 words is typically what you would see. Um, so we built that the, uh, the dictionary or lexicon what that lexicon actually is, is it's got the word that the person would have said, and it has the actual sounds that would make up that word. 
uh, those sounds are called phonemes. So that when it hears those sounds, it it's going to replace it with the text of that it word. It knows what the word yeah. is. Uh, yeah, why don't you just keep them going through it? I'm going around for T2, stay no, stay off, flight controllers. T2, stay no, stay, retro. Stay. Fido. Stay. Stay. Control. Stay. Falcom. Stay. In the corner. Ecom. Stay. Sergeant. Stay. Capcom, we're stay for T2. Eagle Houston, you're stay for T2, over. I just stay for T2, we thank you. Roger, sir. Lakshmish Kaushik was working as a speech scientist in Montreal when he learned through academic circles about John Hansen's project, and he was intrigued. He was interested because he knew Hansen's reputation and recognized the research significance of the project, and he was struck at the prospect of working with NASA. So he left his job and enrolled at the University of Texas at Dallas as a PhD candidate working with Hansen on the Apollo Tapes project. It was his job to build the speech recognition system that could turn the digitized audio of the Apollo Mission Control Center team into text. Like for example, if I say, um, oh, okay, eagle, so it will try to understand, okay, eagle, it will try to separate it into its individual components and then try to identify the most basic phonetic composition of the audio. After it finds the most probable phonetic composition of the audio, these units are sent to the language models, which I described earlier, which will try to uh, decode and force the possible sentences and the words using the phonetic structure or the phonemes that have been decoded uh, by the acoustic models. At that point, are you like playing one uh, conversation at a time to it to to put it together, or do you already get to? Are you at a point where you can play the multiple conversations that were happening at the same time on different tracks, uh, and and having it sort those out? Well, those things were done in uh, uh, parallelly. Like let us assume we have. Uh, totally 30 channels in a single analog track and then we have 30 separate audio files. Once the system is built, like this transcriber system which will take the speech and then convert it into text, we had an enormous huge cluster of computers which can convert speech to text parallelly. So we uh, parallelly started uh, this transcription system uh, running across almost around, like running parallelly in 50 computers at the same time. 50? So we had... Five, five yes. zero? 50 computers? Yes. yes. Wow. It, it, is, it is like something known as, called as a, a GPU rack, which had almost around 10 GPUs, which are very computationally efficient, which can do millions and millions of computation every second and it had more than 100 EPU processors which can uh, crunch the data at a blazing speed. So we use this kind of uh, cluster to convert this speech to text and mind it we had 19,000 hours of data and this conversion is almost real time. So that means that, okay, if I give 10 seconds of data, 
it takes almost around eight to nine seconds to uh, to convert it into text. So in order to convert 19,000 hours of data, we have to run uh, more than 50 to 100 parallel threads at the same time to transcribe the entire 19,000 hours of data. This conversion itself took almost around four to five months. Yep, that's what he said. It took four to five months with 50 computers crunching data to generate transcripts of the mission control conversations with timestamps to indicate when things were said. That facilitated the researchers' work with this trove of audio, just as it will help you when you go to the website where you can read the transcripts and listen to the audio yourself. I'll give you the web address in a few minutes. It also turns out that the transcripts sped up the ability of the NASA Export Control Office to review all the material to approve its release to the public. My name's Karen Walsman. I work on the JSC Export Services team, which is also known as Export Control. So, What is export control, or and why does anything need to have its export controlled? That's an excellent question, and one that the JSC Export Services team and myself, and headquarters and everybody in export control would really like to make known. It's really a twofold thing. The first thing people think about is missiles. You know, you want to control technology so that people can't get the technology that they have. Um, that we have that can then be turned on us and hurt us, missile technology. The other thing is to maintain our excellent superiority in some places where we really have the majority of the knowledge, like in engine design. And so we help when we get with Rocketdyne, Aerojet, and these guys, and they help us with our engines and to provide us with engines, we protect that technology for them. And we don't let that stuff get out unless somebody actually has a need to see it and we have a requirement to send it to them so we're protecting you know US technology as well as protecting our safety from you know bad people overseas i guess that you're trying to protect this information from being released either intentionally or accidentally yes and a lot of people don't realize that you and i sitting here carrying on this discussion i could release technology or data into the public domain that was not ever intended to be released into the public domain your your conversation might right. release information mm -hmm. and so if if we have this discussion and it contains itar or eAR controlled information and then you put it out on the web there it goes it's in the public Okay, and those acronyms are for, for laws that are, are regulate the, the release of such information, Those are the right? two laws. The ITAR is the International Traffic and Arms Re Regulations, and that's controlled by the Department of State. They're more military-based. The EAR is the Export Administration Regulations, and that's controlled by the Department of Commerce, and they're more business-based. But there is a lot of technology and missile-type technology that is in the EAR, controlled by Commerce. Space Station, for example, is controlled by the Department of Commerce. Hmm. The Orion vehicle itself is controlled by the Department of Commerce. 
Karen Walsman started working at NASA in 1989 during the return to flight effort after the loss of Space Shuttle Challenger. She's worked in the mission control back rooms on the robotics flight control team. She's trained Space Shuttle astronauts and designed simulators for astronaut training and has worked on the Orion program. So she brought a wide-ranging knowledge of work done at the Johnson Space Center when she joined Export Control. And her boss thought she was a natural for this assignment. So the export services team was contacted, and our center export administrator, Ari Blum, said, well, Karen can do that. <laughs> she knows about older programs. And so I met with everybody and tried to get a, a handle on what was needed and required, and we started exchanging information, and that's how it started. Are you, at this point, do you think that you're looking at just reviewing historical information, or are you still concerned about technology, albeit 50-year-old technology? Yeah, it's 50-year-old technology, but it's still how to maneuver in space. It's still engines. You know, we're firing engines, and we're guidance is a big deal. We're using guidance and navigation and how to control where you're going from point A to point B in space. And those things are technologies that are controlled by export control. The thing I was looking for, though, was any very deep details of discussions that could be considered technical data and something we would not want to be transmitted out over the waves and into the public. Can you give me, an, without, without spilling the technological beans, can you give me an example of what kind of a conversation you, you were thinking of that, that might be present? Yeah, the biggest thing you're looking for is when there's a problem. Because when you have a malfunction of some kind, then the engineers start talking in very deep detail about how the hardware that failed was designed and what it was intended to do and then what it ended up doing. And that's called anomaly resolution. And many times, even when we get licenses to provide um, support to our international partners, we're still not allowed to help them with anomaly resolution and because that will then teach them how to fix their own problems when they have a problem with their hardware in the future. And so you kind of look for those kind of in-depth discussions for anomaly resolution or design discussions on how a piece of hardware was designed. But in verbal conversations, it's very hard to get all of that through without having them the hard copy data that they're looking at to go through it. When you say it's hard in a verbal conversation to get that information through, the through part is throwing me. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about to get that cleared through a, a, an export control review or to get it conveyed to the person to whom you're speaking? Conveyed to the person to whom you're speaking without having a written document in front of them as well as reference. That the two of you are looking at and, and, and then carrying on a discussion about. I see. That's, that's the better way to put so, that. So merely a, a conversation between these two, between some two people 
without absent a document they're referring to is less likely to contain anything that you would that you don't want to be released. That's correct. And sometimes that's not the case. You know, they're really good at explaining things, but the majority of the time they're just talking numbers. And unless you're really good at what you're listening to, it's just a lot of numbers. Or maybe if you don't if you already have some detailed knowledge, you would understand what those numbers mean. And there is a lot of detailed knowledge about the Apollo program already out there. And because it's been out for so long, right? Right. Yeah. And we didn't have the controls at the end of the Apollo program on technology that we do today, the details. And so everybody was all excited about the technology that we had back in the early 70s when everything was winding down and they were all excited about building rockets and and showing how the engines worked and all those good things and so there's just a lot of technical data out on the internet it's easy to find Hansen and some of his students have described to me that they digitized 19,000 hours of conversations which then is coming to your desk? What, what, how, what kind of plan do you come up with to, to try to wade through that mountain of material? My plan was simple. I chose what I considered the three biggies. They started with Apollo 11, of course. What an exciting thing to listen to over and over again. I mean, I listened to the entire mission of Apollo 11. I picked out bits and pieces of other missions that where I knew there were anomalies and where they were in the would be in the recordings to listen to those and then based upon that level of detail I we extrapolated an export control decision for the entire set without listening to the entire set. Okay, you didn't have to listen to all 19,000 hours. I think my child would have to have carried on my <laughs> legacy for doing that too. I don't think I have 19,000 hours in my world. <laughs> did you were, were did the uh, either Hansen and his team or the the technical people who helped digitize that uh, in the public affairs office, did they give you some assistance or some means of, of helping get through the material? Uh, Hansen's team broke, out, broke it all down into snippets of recordings, and then they ran it through a, a piece of software that would listen to the recording and write down a transcript of it. In order for NASA Export Control to actually go through and approve the release of this, when we first started talking with NASA Export Control, their original approach was, well, we need to listen to this. And we said, well, okay, but this is 19,000 hours. You can't listen to 19,000 hours. <laughs> so how do we speed this up? So that was a new problem we had to, we, we looked at. So we decided, well, let's try to streamline this. We, we were motivated to try and make it easier for the export control specialists to be able to, to go through this quickly. So we set up a process where once the transcripts are generated and the audio is there, we automatically populate an Excel file. And in the Excel file, we have one uh, row that basically just has the text transcript of what's in that 15 minute block. And so a person from export control can just read what they see in that, ex in that text block. If they're unsure of what was being said or they have some concern, in the next uh, cell, there's a, a direct link. They can just click. And when they click that link, there's a, a, 
a system called uh, Transcriber, LDC Transcriber tool that pops up, has the waveform, has the text transcript, and all of the links that put the text directly with the audio. So now they can just click this little highlighted spot that they're looking at in the Excel file and just listen to that, you know, one to three second, five second block. So it really sped up the, the export control process. In one month, uh, NASA Export Control was able to approve uh, a thousand hours of audio. And otherwise they would have had to have listened to all of that. And so they listened to a fraction of it. Um, in addition to that, we were really appreciative. NASA Export Control also went and started doing a lot of the, um, uh, I would say, the, the improvements of the transcripts. Because when you run speech recognition, it's not going to be flawless. There's going to be some errors. And so the NASA Export Control Specialist actually uh, made some text comments and corrections there, but also had a feel there that said, well, this spot is particularly important for this reason. So she inserted some comments there that were really helpful for an archiving purpose. Were there things you found that you had to cut out? That you said, no, you can't, you can't release this? Um, it mostly had to do with personal information. You know, they call it PII, personally identifiable information, because people are handing out phone numbers, not like they're valid anymore. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> and, um, and I said, you probably really don't want to do that. So in all of that, you didn't really find anything substantial or, no, or technology releases that, you know, technological information that needed to be protected. Not really, no. Did you find anything in there that you found really interesting, really fascinating, things you didn't know before. Yeah, that there's a place in Clear Lake back in 1968, 69, called the Chicken House, and you can get a sandwich, a french fry, <laughs> and a Coke for a buck 65. Wow. <laughs> we should go there for lunch now. I don't um, know where the Chicken House is, but every time they were going for lunch or dinner, it was there were only three options, and it was the Chicken House and some German restaurant and a burger joint. Mm -hmm. And that was it. That's the only three they ever came up with. Go ahead, network. Hey, that's the ring that's been partied, laid down, partied down the hop route garden back in the back Thursday. I understand they're going to block off NASA 1 at Webster. Um, how do you th think of this job in comparison to the other kind of jobs that you've done? Is it, was this special, uh, more interesting, more important? It was special in... Um, because I grew up in Titusville during the Apollo program. Oh. My dad was a contractor at the Kennedy Space Center at that time. So to me, it was very near and dear to my heart to hear all of these things and see all these things because I got to watch these launches from my backyard or sometimes from the bleachers outside of Launch Control Center. And so to come back as an adult all these years later and, and listen to these men and a couple of women um, go through all of this was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And my brother is an Apollo nut. And so this, I would send him little emails going, you're not going to believe it. <laughs> when it's released, I can tell you. <laughs> Powered flight angle 10, decimal 3822, and that is a change. Powered flight burn time 444 seconds. Altitude and insertion, 60,000 feet. Velocity and insertion, 55, 35 decimal zero.
Karen Walsman's review of the mountain of material led to export control approval for public release of the Apollo 11 mission control tapes and transcripts. And that meant two things. The first thing is, John Hansen and his team could use it in their academic research. And I'll let Tantiana Karelski from the National Science Foundation comment on the quality of that work. There was a very interesting development which was never um, um, even anticipated before. They decided to use the technology to um, identify sentiment, to identify negative and positive statements, because there were so certain exchanges on those Apollo tapes were so emotional. There were events happening in real time. So people were sometimes um, upset, sometimes they were elated. And it was a great material to use technology, which is actually they had to push the technology because is as you maybe understand that to understand the emotion, you only you don't only use words. You also use what we call prosody. It's the intonation contour of speech. It's either high pitch as when people are excited, or it's um, so. So this prosodic analysis was also done. So that was in addition to to what they proposed to do. And to tell you quite frankly, it's unbelievable what they accomplished on a small award. It was a small award, five hundred thousand. Uh, dollars for three years and it's totally amazing to us now what they have been uh, achieved during on on that on that small uh, small small award the the research that they were able to do after they solved the engineering problem of, of getting the material off the tapes did it and maybe it's too soon to know maybe the research isn't over but have, did they learn the things they set out to learn Yes, they did. And not only that, they published many, many papers in the best international conferences, which to us at NSF proves the quality of their research. Because if they are, all these papers are usually peer-reviewed very, very uh, stringently, you know. And um, the fact that they were, were able to publish at the best conferences, actually, uh, and many papers just tells us about the quality of the research. And I want to make sure that, that we understand what the ultimate goal is here. All of this is, is leading you to develop these language models and, and, and through the use of, of this raw material that you got from NASA to create what? To create, we wanted the text transcript, but we wanted the transcript that actually had, uh, for all the audio, we wanted to have the exact time when the speech was produced. We wanted to at least understand that they were turns that were taking between speakers. Um, and we wanted to be able to synchronize that across the multiple channels. So think of this as kind of like doing the reverse of an audio, an audio recording from a symphony. You have you know 30 tracks of different instruments playing. You want to digitize each of those individually. You then want to kind of understand the score of what each instrument is actually uh, playing. And then you want to be able to look across these different tracks to understand how are these different sounds across these different instruments working together. 
Likewise, for NASA, how are each of these different channels and the people on each of these loops solving a particular problem and how does it affect people in another loop? And that's what was happening in the example that you used, but you're using that to develop technology that could be used in what way? Yeah, so the, the, by advancing the speech technology, moving speech recognition out of simply just saying, well, I've got one person reading prompted text, let's say for a news broadcast from TV or radio, to someone speaking spontaneously, uh, moving away from a single person talking to groups of people talking collaboratively together. Uh, the technology that exists for you know, the first part there, that's been developed over the last maybe 30 or 40 years. The technology for looking at multiple people talking collaboratively, people have been working on that, but it's a very, very small portion of the actual research that's been accomplished. And the reason is because there really are no corpora available for the community to use. This will be the standard corpus that the speech and language community uses to look at collaborative multi-speaker type engagement for solving problems. The real huge plus here is that these are people solving a real problem. You know, one would argue that the most challenging engineering problem mankind has seen. Um, but also, these are natural voice that was being recorded. All the microphones were known. Uh, you know, everything was digitized with a particular time code on there. You know, this is the best one could ever hope for. You know, no one would ever think uh, if there's a natural disaster, wait, let's actually record everyone who's going to speak and let's make sure we synchronize all the audio. It'll never happen. So this is really a very rare but a unique opportunity that NASA has, has allowed the speech and language community to have access to. And it really will be a game changer. It will ultimately... Can, uh, contribute to better understanding of how people work together in teams. You can imagine the army or the military would want to know this. You can imagine anyone dealing with natural disasters would want to understand this. And they're going to take the lead in their experience coming directly from how NASA works as a team. And that's, to me, a very, very good reason why NASA represents kind of a uh, you know, a primary example of actually how other organizations could should work collaboratively together. It's not a, a pitch for NASA, but it's really what we see from the audio from here. Now, the second thing that resulted from export control clearing the Apollo 11 audio for use and release is that Hansen and his team had a go to publish so you and I can listen to it too. It's all online at the website exploreapollo.org. We're an academic institution, so we're making all the data available. Where, where, where? If I wanted to go scan it, listen to some of it, where would I go? So we have a website uh, that uh, you can get access to, and it has some of the audio examples there. Um, we had undergraduate students working on this for uh, probably. Well, uh, we had seven different teams working on this for maybe uh, four years uh, working on this. Um, one of the spots on the Explore Apollo website, uh, the students wanted, to, we had like different stories. We said, well, you can't just start playing this. No one wants to listen to the whole thing. So you have to have bite-sized chunks that would be appropriate. The students started developing those things, and then we test drove those little stories 
at the Perot Museum during Engineers Week, having kids that are, you know, from first grade up to eighth grade, kind of listening to. We got their feedback. We had other. Uh, there's another a group on campus called SEEK, the Science Engineering Education Center. Uh, Russell Hulls, our Nobel Prize laureate at UTD, oversees that. And so we had that group uh, also review some of the stories and things. So we have small bite-sized chunks, so to speak, on the Explore Apollo-type website that we set up. Uh, the students wanted to have something that would be like random. So there's a little button that you could say, surprise me. And it would randomly put you into some spot during the mission that you can kind of listen to, which is an interesting thing. Uh, I had to remind the students, look, nothing gets NASA engineers more nervous than the word surprise me. <laughs> so I said, you got to be careful when you do that. But it was good. Network, Fado. Go ahead, Fado. Ed? Yeah. Stanley taught at Jay. You know that, uh, that sheet of paper, LLS, determination, you know, where you fill in and do all your computation mm -hmm. right after touchdown. Yeah, you'd uh, like one. Yeah, would you? So I got the I got one, but I never did get one all filled in because we had so much trouble uh, right after descent. Would you have one of the math aides copy that and send it to me down to PT? The like site is very nice. It's very nice. I actually, uh, preparing for this interview, I went and I used the site a little bit. The site has stories about what's happening on this Apollo tape. You can click and you hear the conversation and you see the running tra transcript, which is automatically recognized. It's a very, very nice uh, site for the public and especially for younger, uh, um, uh, younger generation. Um, they, I think also that this website on Dr. Hansen might tell you um, more in more detail that some variant of it was also installed in the uh, Perot uh, Museum of Science. But that is another thing. For kids, it was just really fascinating because they they can browse these tapes and see exactly what was said and who, um, you know, who is talking like commanders and the uh, a control center. Very, very interesting. Oh, man, uh, I was just looking on page 3-55. They got a picture of the spacecraft, the angle to the sun, and the uh, attitude of the spacecraft. It looked like to me about 90 degrees on that day. That was uh, 15 hours ago. Greg Wiseman, the audio engineer at JSC, who helped John Hansen and his team digitize the audio for their project and helped post the audio online. And so now we have it uploaded in bulk to archive.org, uh, making it available for anyone who wants it. And since we've released it, we, I've been in contact with some documentary filmmakers who are taking this audio and they're synchronizing it with some recently discovered 70 millimeter film that was shot in the mission control room during the landing. Uh, which is really exciting because for the first time that film will have an audio, an audio component. They didn't record audio originally with the film, um, but of course, NASA was recording the audio loop, so they were able to take our recordings and lip sync it with this film, uh, because a lot of the film was shooting flight controllers, so they've got the film, now they've got their audio, and it's it's really amazing. It's amazing the the work that these, these folks were able to do, uh, resyncing all of this. So, um, all of these things, are coming together at the same time, um, I think it's going to provide a new perspective and insight into Apollo 11. And 
I think as we get closer to the anniversary of the moon landing, with the release of all this new material, it's really going to propel um, this monumental event back into the forefront of uh, public consciousness. We've distributed, uh, I think, uh, a few of these to a couple of different uh, groups. There's one group that's uh, developing um, a movie for CNN and an IMAX movie um, using some of this audio. Um, I think so. So one of the, the interesting challenges from that uh, effort, uh, this one company, uh, NASA had a, a videographer or, or that would walk around with a video camera and actually videotape, um, you know, mission control space, uh, people working and stuff. But uh, the video recorder was actually just video. It didn't have any audio. So they had these silent films of all these people. They may take, you know, five seconds or ten seconds of video here, and then they'd go somewhere else and take five or ten seconds. So all that video was actually available. Uh, this one company had access to it, but they didn't have any audio. But they could see someone was talking, you know, on their headset. So they were trying to read the lips and look to see, okay, we think they said this. And then they would try to go back and see if they search. could search and find that. But they weren't being too successful. So they reached out to NASA, I think uh, Greg Weissman they contacted, and Greg said, well, go find John Hansen up there in Dallas and maybe he can help you out. <laughs> so we talked with them and we sent them, uh, we got permission from NASA, but we, we, we sent them the full material for Apollo 11 and then Apollo 13. And the way I see it is they're basically playing Frankenstein. They're, what they're do doing is they're using video that was recorded from a silent video camera, and they're linking that to audio that we digitized, you know, 48 years later, and stitching them together. And it's really cool because there's some examples where you're listening to an audio, which is the audio that, that we pulled up, and every once in a while you'll see video portion of the person actually speaking, and then it just goes to audio again. And so what they've done is they've just stitched this video and connected it to the audio. And it's really interesting because it gives you like a window into what mission control space actually looked like uh, when they were talking. When we kind of had some of these news releases, we started getting contacted by, you know, someone saying, yeah, my, my father uh, worked for NASA or my next door neighbor, uh, he worked for NASA. And so right now, one of my students is actually doing something called uh, Finding Waldo. If you know what Waldo is, mm -hmm. you find a picture of him. So someone will say, yeah, my uh, uncle or my grandfather or my father worked for NASA. So we asked them, well, can you send me a picture of what he looked like at that time and what he looks like now? And what we're going to do is we're going to go back and we're going to actually go across all 19,000 hours and try to find examples of when that person spoke. And then on our archive, we're going to have their picture and then we're going to have a little, um, you know, folder with all the audio clips that that person spoke. So now someone will be able to actually say, hey, my grandfather worked at NASA. Here are examples of him talking to Neil Armstrong. He had to be Capcom if he was talking to Neil Armstrong. Yeah. But, but here's you know him talking with other specialists at NASA at the time. And so this actually, we hope, will show a little bit about the people that worked behind the scenes that really are kind of like the unsung heroes that made sure that uh, everything was going to be successful. It's very much true in Apollo 11. Apollo 13 
was probably NASA's one of the biggest accomplishments they were able to, to, to achieve, you know, at least when I was looking at Apollo. So we're, we're kind of happy of, of this notion of the heroes behind the heroes. We think it's something that rings true. They're going to kick us out of here. This has been terrific. All right. Let's go. Let me make one more yes. statement. So one other, you, you might ask, well, why would we want to try and and put so, mo- so much effort into digitizing and making this technology available? We really wanted to try and, and emphasize that people at NASA at that time were trying to accomplish an enormous engineering challenge. When we think about NASA and we think about the Apollo program, we tend to gravitate towards the astronauts. The astronauts are to be admired. Um, you know, they risked their lives. They achieved an enormous uh, accomplishments for not just the United States, but for mankind. But when we talk with students, one of the things that people often forget is for someone to make it to the moon and back safely, You had to have a team of people working collaboratively together to solve some of the most challenging engineering uh, tasks that you could ever imagine. So we kind of use this expression, the heroes behind the heroes. These are the people that sacrificed everything to try and make sure that NASA was going to accomplish this. In 1962, Just a couple of dozen miles up the road from where I'm sitting today, President John Kennedy predicted that exploring space would be hard, and he set an ambitious goal for the nation. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win too. John Hansen and his students and a group of irregulars gathered for the task made it possible for you and me to travel in time 50 years into the past to hear the men and women of that America live up to the challenge. You can listen to it all unfold for yourself today at ExploreApollo.org. Thanks for sticking around to see if there was anything more after the music ended. I mean, what more could there be to say after four full episodes, right? Well, just this. We decided to take a different approach with these few podcasts for a couple of reasons. One is because we felt the story was worth it. But mostly it's because we can. The podcast format allows us to spend as much or as little time as we choose on topics that interest us and that we think will interest you. And we have the freedom to try out different styles of storytelling to achieve our goal, capturing your attention with the stories of what's going on, past, present, and future, in America's space program. We hope you'll keep coming back for more. The Heroes Behind the Heroes episodes of Houston We Have a Podcast were produced by Greg Wiseman and me, with editing and audio engineering by Greg, with help from Alex Perryman. Thanks to the guests who shared their parts of this story, Tatiana Karelski at the National Science Foundation, Larry Vroman and John French, who helped bring Soundscriber back from the dead, Karen Walsman of the Export Control Office at the Johnson Space Center, 
Tuan Nguyen and Lakshmish Kaushik of the UT Dallas team who digitized the tapes and built the speech recognition system, my NASA Media Production Services colleague Greg Wiseman, and Dr. John Hansen, the leader of the whole effort. Also, thanks to Nora Moran and Gary Jordan for helping us pull all of this together for you. Check out the whole series and all of our podcast episodes at nasa.gov slash podcasts. And when you do, please check out the other cool NASA podcasts that you will find there also, like Welcome to the Rocket Ranch, On a Mission, NASA in Silicon Valley. There are many more, and they're all worth your listen. They're all available at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts. We'll be back with all new episodes starting next week. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Never used to. Welcome to space.